Deborah Craddock, a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Democratic. Today on Democratic, we are going to get to know Kenneth Setzer. Kenneth is a renaissance man in the field of gardening and plants. Ken is a writer and editor who has written for the Tropical Garden Magazine as well as for the Miami Herald. Let's find out more about this interesting guy and how he came to be the man sitting with us today. How you doing today, Kenneth? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. I know you're in Miami now, but where are you originally mm-hmm. from? I was born in Plainview, in Plainview, Long Island, and lived in Massapequa, Long Island, until I was about 10. Who did you grow up with there in Massapequa? I had my mother, father, and two brothers, and our dog. And are you the baby of the family? Are you the oldest? What's what's the birth order? I'm I'm the baby, absolutely, in many ways. (laughs) And did you have a happy home life there in Massapequa? Yeah, it was a mixture. Thinking back on this, I, I always ruminate about the past, which is probably not the healthiest thing. Yeah, a lot of good times, but then a lot of not so good times, too. What was life like? Was it a lot of sporty stuff, outside activities? Tell me a little bit about that. I was very, um, they always said, he's quiet, he's shy. I guess you'd say introverted now. I hated sports. I wanted nothing to do with it. And let's see, my older brothers were musicians. And I was around that, which was kind of cool. I had weird friends and weird stuff going on. And I got exposure to art and music that an eight, nine, ten-year-old kid would never get exposed to. All kinds. I've heard all kinds of weird things being said too that uh, I'm only now starting to understand (laughs) because they were, let's see, nine and eleven years older than me. So you grew up pretty quick around those big brothers, huh? Yes, I learned all kinds of good words. It's great. (laughs) And both musicians. Um, So do you have any musical talent yourself? My wife would say yes, because she's too kind, but I don't think so. I don't have the real, that desire. Practicing for me was like a drudgery. It wasn't a pleasure, but I tried. And both brothers being musical, did they go on to pursue music as a career? They sure did. Yeah. One one still does, and the other one, I guess, does part-time. All right. And the one that still does is the one that my husband had a band with, and that would be Brian Setzer. I've heard that. <laughs> I heard they had a band together. That band, like, a, it, it was, yeah, to a great extent, that band formed who I am even because they're my favorite band for years. Absolutely love them. That's wonderful. And you were such a little guy, huh? And so... Yeah. In your household growing up, were politics discussed or did politics play a role at all? They did. I don't really, I mean, I recall it now. At the time, I didn't know what was going on. Later on, when we moved, uh, when I got older, I did. But yeah, I remember it was, I don't think my parents were that into voting. My mother said last time she voted was in the 70s. She couldn't figure it out. And when you opened the curtain, apparently it was like a thing you go into your vote was cast once you opened the curtain. So she opened it to ask instructions and they said, sorry, you already cast your vote. And, you know, she hadn't like placed any of them. She just was like, her time was done. She said, I gave up. That's it. I've never voted again since 1977 or whatever. And my dad, he would say things like, I remember my brother's had the village voice for like band listings in the city to see what was going on. And he said, what is this commie liberal rag doing in here? What is this, this shit doing here? And I had no idea what he was talking about, but 
was funny. So was there a political affiliation in your household? Do you think your parents were politically aligned with any party? They didn't make too much of a big deal about it, but I know my ostensibly Republican. My father was a marble setter, so he was very uh, a blue-collar guy. He wasn't like a right-wing guy. I don't think he got that involved in it. Was he a union guy? Yes. He was a marble setter, and they were in a union. That's what's strange to me is that when I got older, I was like, "How? why are you such a Republican in, in a union? I thought it was kind of, you know, anathema to each other. <laughs> but And do you have any thoughts or opinions on unions today? You know, I wish I were in one, but uh, I, I'm in favor of them. I mean, I'm, I'm always in favor of the worker, but like anything else, they can be corrupted, you know. Of course. There's corruption in every aspect of life, I feel, right. these days, yeah. especially these days. Um, so let's talk about when you were growing up, was there religion in your home? That's a very interesting topic. You know, my brothers were forced to go to Catholic, not Catholic school, but uh, Catholic instruction, catechism, I think it's called. And they had to go to church on Sunday. They told me they had no free time and that I got away with murder because by the time I came around, my parents didn't give a shit about my immortal soul. They thought, ah, let him go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make me go. They baptized me Catholic. And growing up, they said, we're Catholic. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, who really does? And my mother's family is all Jewish. So according to Jewish law, I can be considered a Jew. And was that something you knew growing up, that your mom's side was Jewish? No, it's funny you ask that because they, they dragged me to church once or twice, and I made such a a fuss of saying how bored I was that my brother said it was like the omen that if I went in there again, the church was going to collapse or set on, catch on fire. But um, no, only when we moved to New York, to Queens, and I got to spend more time with my grandmother, with my mother's side of the family and great aunt. By that time, I was 10, almost 11. So was, you, know, you get a little older, more aware of things. And I saw like, you know, Judaica hanging up. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, Grammy's Jewish? Shocking. I had no idea what that meant, too. I was like, what's the big secret? <laughs> but no, I didn't know it till around then. I didn't think of it. Interesting. And so, do you carry religion into your home today? Not really, no. I mean, we have little tchotchkes around, you know, like a cross that someone gave me when my dad died, other little things like that. But we don't practice any religion. My wife is an atheist. My daughter, I think, is too. I don't practice it at all, but I feel like there's more of like a natural energy type of thing. There's a lot we can't see and hear. You know, we couldn't really call it religion. Okay. And so I guess then religion doesn't inform your political perspective in any way. No. Only in that I think everyone should have the freedom to practice their religion as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Couldn't agree with you more, Kenneth. And so in your home now, do you have... Do politics play a role in your adult home? <laughs> <laughs> Who's the adults here? I don't know any adults here. Well, I'm assuming you grew up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it's funny. In New York, I was more conservative because I, I guess I just believed what I was told. But my, by the time I was able to vote, I voted Democrat and still am. We're, don't, we're definitely more progressive in the House, no matter what you want to call it. Uh, I don't know. I don't like terms like liberal and all this kind of things. People assume you believe a certain way or on every little detail, you know, and everyone's different. But yeah, we're both Democrat. And my daughter definitely does. Her first vote was for Hillary Clinton, and she sent us a selfie, and she was so proud, so sweet to see her voting. How do you feel about the situation in the state of Florida where they've rolled back so many rights and, and fought against, you know, fought to overturn Roe v. Wade, and they just keep trying to take yeah. rights further and further back. It's nuts. It's nuts. My wife said, are men that afraid of women? And I said, well, you guys are very powerful, but it's nuts. No, it's disgusting. I, I don't know why anyone would mind anyone else's business. That's something I always felt is like, don't mind other people's business if they're not harming you. And as far as the abortion thing, I mean, it's not like people do this for fun. You know, it's not a great decision for a woman to have to make yeah. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't even be part of anything the government has any say about at all. It's just, I don't know why it does. Strange. It's like marriage too. I wouldn't want the government telling me who can and can't get married. And there's a lot of that going on in Florida right now too, huh? If you're looking at the government for moral guidance, you're 
<laughs> you're going to be trouble. I want to learn about Kenneth the Kid. So I see that you love <laughs> you love pets, rocks, books, maps, model and real trains, model ships, history, bugs, travel, and photography. That's quite a list of things you love. <laughs> so were you always this kid that was fascinated by rocks and bugs? And were you out there picking up insects? My wife said I'm like the kid who comes home with a frog in his pocket. I don't think I was as a little kid. I was interested in like soldiers, army, you know, plastic soldiers and spaceships and Star Wars. And I love toys with collector toys. But I played with them. wasn't really a collector. I like rocks and stuff as a kid. I wouldn't have picked up a bug. My mother brainwashed us to be terrified of bugs. She didn't want to kill them. She told us to like respect and love animals. But uh, no, I was afraid of bugs. But then I developed kind of an interest in beetles. They're a little less scary. And actually, when I met my wife's father, he's very into beetles and insects. So I was able to kind of expand that and learn about them. And now, now I pick them up all the time, research them and stuff. And yeah, I guess I am into a lot of different things. I think I wrote to you that my wife says I get very into a subject, kind of master it, which I don't think I master anything, and then get onto something else. But it's like a, a central core. Like I always come back to like, you know, core things of photography, nature, bigger categories like that. So as a child, were you super curious? Did you just want to learn about things? Were you just always questioning? I don't know that I was always questioning. I guess I was curious. I was also kind of like withdrawn. I still am, but it's funny you say that because I had a boss who once told me I was the most curious person she ever met. I'm like, well, you know, you see a rock on the ground, flip it over and see what's under it. How could you not want to know? But no, as a kid, I think I was kind of shy and withdrawn. I, was, I didn't like to let people know what I was thinking or feeling. I wouldn't want to write anything down. I was afraid someone would find it. I felt like it was kind of revealing something about me and it was making me vulnerable. It was like a fear of that. And so was that just a byproduct of like your household? Was it not a place that really talked about things or opened up? I would like to blame my parents for everything that goes wrong in my <laughs> life, but I don't think I can. Yeah, it was kind of like, um, you can't do that. You know, that's not going to happen. He wants to do this. He wants to do that. That's not going to happen. And then like, you know, your brothers look at it and then it's taken to an extreme like hey he thinks he can do this he thinks he can do it. look he wrote this he's doing that and it just i was probably i'm probably exaggerating but it felt like very intrusive so i was like don't write anything down okay so you're this kid who's kind of curious just but a little bit shy so how do you arrive at who you are today well i remember being kind of i never felt like i fit a lot of people say that and they have more reason even than I do, but I never felt like I fit. Always felt like not an outcast, but just like not the kid who would blend in and start playing with kids unless you were forced. And then even it was weird. I had like maybe one or two friends. I guess I preferred to be alone a lot of the time. But yeah, I never really felt like I fit. But I do think that I was exposed to a lot of cool things in the house with older brothers who were very kind of curious, hanging out in the city, and they'd bring it home and, you know, they'd have strange little weird stuff were laying around the house. I was like, what is that? What is that? I want to know. You know, I remember my older brother had um, a giant candy rack that he took, borrowed from um, an out-of-business candy store. And this was the 70s, so those, these racks were like from the 60s or 50s. It was huge. I thought it was as a kid. Everything looks bigger. And it actually had like metal tags on it identifying what candy was to go in that row. Like you'd never see that now, you know. And that fascinated what me. What a cool like, item. Candy, bro. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's so cool. Oh, my God. Imagine if it was filled with the actual candy. I wish I had that thing today. <laughs> so stuff like that, it, it kind of like intrigues you and opens up things in the kid's head, I think. How old were you when your brothers kind of were off and out of the house because you're so much younger? I was pretty young. By the time I moved to Queens and I was 10, by then they were pretty much, the older one was gone, was out on his own. Right. And the middle one was more or less out. In that way, I'm kind of like an only child. Right. I would think so, being that that far behind. You're living with your mom and dad at that point after the, the boys are off and out and you've moved to Queens. And how often are you seeing your brothers and all these eccentricities or, you know, all these bizarre things going on from a little <laughs> kid's perspective? It was a strange house in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't see them that much that often. I mean, they had their own lives. I was a little kid. They would take me with them occasionally. I know my middle brother would take me when he played into the city. In the city, he would take me into Manhattan and, you know, 
I'd get to see all kinds of weird things. One thing that changed me, it was when I was 10, 10 and a half, something like that. We flew to London to visit my brother there who was living there as a musician. And that like opened my eyes. I loved it. I instantly felt like I kind of fit in there. Even though I was a little kid, I saw weird people, you know, punks and new wave, rockabilly, new romantic people, really weird. Like nothing you'd ever see in Queens. And I liked them. They seemed cool. They were nice to me. They didn't fight with each other. Well, I know that's idealizing it, but that's how it looked. Did you travel back to London over the years? Not really. I used to want to live there, but it's not the easiest thing to do. Right. Well, so now you're this kid, you're living on your own, and you're, you've got these curiosities. Who is your biggest influence at this point? I guess both of my brothers, to an extent, because I was like a little rockabilly punk kid in ways that they weren't even like, you know, when I turned to more of a punk, they were like, they didn't know what to think of that. They were like, what are you doing that for? There was always something like, something to say. But I guess that's how. I didn't want to be a musician, though. I just liked an alternative kind of look. And I didn't like the people in Queens. They were very kind of backward, I felt, at that time. It's hard to describe, I guess. It's hard to make an analogy. But I could see Manhattan from where I lived. But to get there was difficult because there were no like direct trains. So it's kind of like a roundabout way because Queens is huge. So it was really frustrating. It was like, there's a place of all this like cool stuff going on, art and intellectual activity and music, everything you can imagine. And I'm stuck here next to the, you know, the UPS depot. <laughs> I'm sure you finally made your way into the city though, huh? When I got older, I, yeah, I was like, I don't care how long it takes, hour and a half, I'll do it. <laughs> Sat on a bus and a train. And then did you realize I don't have to go as far as London to see weird people? <laughs> yeah, good weird. You're the baby. One of your brothers becomes super famous. How do you mm -hmm. feel about that? Like, as a kid, was it? Tell me about that. I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. He was always, you know, very nice to me and you know, like the big brother type of way. And uh, I thought it was cool to hang around with them. Every little brother, almost every little brother wants to hang with their older brothers and be a pest. And I loved the music and the look of it, the style. So I loved it. It had its down downsides too, of course, but, uh, yeah, it informed me for years. And he is, that brother is um, one of the most gifted guitarists really out there. I mean, still till this day, he's something else. So Absolutely. you didn't just have a famous brother. You had an exceptionally talented brother. And uh, good to know there was no jealousy or envy. No, no. I never, I didn't want to step into those shoes of either one of them. You mentioned that, it, how talented he is, uh as a as a guitarist in queens at that time people were just not into that manhattan you'd get people cool people but it was just not in queens there was nothing like that they were about you know 10 years behind i just wanted them to know so badly you don't know what you're missing this is so good right. this was frustrating you admired your brother and you were happy for his success that's a beautiful yeah, thing yeah i like both of them so it must have been fun it was fun but it was sad too because you know they'd go when i was there alone and then back to regular life you know how that is after a concert you're always kind of like oh, back to regular life <laughs> day after christmas syndrome yes exactly and it made it difficult so were you losing yourself in books were you just an avid reader at that time i don't think i was i think i didn't have the patience i wanted to be like i'd have these books on uh, i had one on reading hieroglyphics, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Pretty weird for like a 16-year-old to have. And I did a little bit of it, and I was like, you know, I just kind of, I wasn't patient enough. Now I'm a little little bit more patient, but I wanted to be like that. And if you want to get into school, I'll tell you about my school experience, which is pretty interesting. Well, I do kind of want to know how you chose linguistics as something as a field of study. So lead us from your 16, you you're, you get out of high school, and then what happens? I always hated school. I loved learning, but I hated the regiment. I hated getting up early. I'm not a morning person. I hated having to sit with my peers. I just hated the whole thing. I'm like, you know, I should be able to get up and go to the bathroom when I want. I don't want to have to raise my hand. So... <laughs> I would fight it. And my mother, I remember once she got a letter saying, your son's been out 26 sick days this year. And it was like a big deal. Oh my God, 26 days. And I guess it is a big deal. But as time went on and I got to be a rebellious teenager, like 12, 13, I was just, I was cutting out every day. I go with my friend to Manhattan. 
we'd sneak menthol cigarettes at like the White Castle and sit there all day doing nothing but looking cool. <laughs> and then, uh, it, you know, got worse and worse. And I was like, I just am not going to go back. I hate it. Junior high was awful. So by, by the time I was 13, I was out. My mother devised a way to get me out of school. <laughs> so you didn't go to high school? Nope. I didn't even finish middle school. I dropped out essentially in seventh grade. What are you doing during this time when all the kids are in high school? Yeah, it's a good question. It's kind of like a blur. I guess I think I was also going into a deep depression Okay. at that time. And even that recently, because I'm not that ancient, you know, depression was like, you must be sad or you, you don't want to live. Or it's like hardcore medication, far less sophisticated than now. You know, my parents would have done something about it. I think they did want me to go to a psychologist. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. What are they going to do for me? But looking back on it, it was probably like going down to a deep hole of depression. I pretty much stayed in my room to a great extent of the time. And I became almost nocturnal. So I'm, I'm not a morning person. So, you know, I would read, watch a lot of TV, a lot of Mary Tyler Moore episode reruns, Joe Franklin. I'm almost like the only 14-year-old watching Joe Franklin at two in the morning. <laughs> Well, I remember they did send a truant officer around saying, you know, this is very serious, blah, blah, blah. And I said, all right, I'll go back, which I didn't. And so my mother said, it's clear you're not going to go. So she devised this uh, way to get them off my back. And she's, she sent them a letter saying, I'm moving to Tennessee because we have these friends in Tennessee and use their address. Send his records there. He's going to school there. And they did. And we never heard from them again. Huh. As far as they know, my mother murdered me and buried me in the basement. <laughs> Glad to know they're really on it over there, Child Protective Services and all. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm kidding. It works. I'm kidding. Uh, well, you I seem know. to have embraced learning. You, like you said, you always liked to learn. You just didn't like the structure of the school. Yeah. So did your daughter go through the public school system? Mm -hmm. She did, completely. College, too. Was that a successful process for her? She didn't like it either. She's, I mean, most kids don't like school, and there's got to be a reason for that. Because learning, I think most kids do enjoy. Yeah, she started disliking it in middle school, did not like high school, but she had a lot of friends. She was able to deal with it. And she said, once she said, Dad didn't go to school, why do I have to? My wife said, that's a completely different situation. Don't you dare compare it to that. So we paid her to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and when, just back to the emotional stuff with the depression, what do you think drove that depression? I've been thinking about that for many years. And again, I'd love to blame my parents for everything. It'd be so easy. But I see now that that is not the case. I've seen that in other people where they've had parents completely unlike mine. And they still suffer from anxiety and depression. I had OCD and anxiety also pretty badly. And I remember these symptoms at around 10, 10 and a half. I remember these things coming up. And I think some of it's genetic. I don't think it's all environment. Both. Does your daughter then suffer any depression or anxiety? I know she has had anxiety. I don't know that she's had depression. You know, I, I don't think I was even clinically di di diagnosed with clinical depression. I was diagnosed with OCD and um, anxiety, the intrusive thought kind of OCD. Well, since you said your parents would have been happy to help out with that and you were like, no, I don't want to do it. How did you, how did you overcome or how do you, how did you then as a young child and still today, how do you deal with those bouts of depression? Then I just didn't do anything. I just kind of like rode through it and the anxiety would stop me from doing things. I couldn't make phone calls to someone I didn't know. There's a lot I couldn't do. And I guess I did do a lot that would make you think that wasn't the case. I could hide it. It just seemed like medications were kind of rough back then. A lot of bad side effects. I didn't want to get into it. I should have had a more open mind because as I got older, maybe like in my 30s, I did try medication. And I've been on, I've been on something for over 20 years. It's been a godsend. And did you have therapy later in life then? I had some therapy when I started medication. Yeah, I had a great doctor. She was a psychiatrist and a therapist, which is hard to find. I once said to her, wow, I'm really messed up, huh? And she, I thought she was going to go, oh, no, you're fine. This, you're, you're nothing. You're no big deal. And she just went, mm-hmm, mm -hmm. just nodded her head, <laughs> which is not what I wanted to hear. Reassuring. But I think we all suffer with some emotional discourse in one way or another. And are, are there services? Is, is there something there to help with mental illness? So that, or, I mean, what, what is the story in Florida with everybody can just have a gun or... 
I mean, that's a little scary considering, you know, there's people out there with mental yeah, illness. Very much so. Or yeah, or I think it's mental illness that isn't even recognized as mental illness. I don't see the desire to walk around with these weapons as something normal. Right. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'll tell you, I have a handgun in the house for protection, which thank God I've never had to use and hope never have to have to, of course. And I've gone to the range to fire. It wasn't that fun. I thought, I don't, see the, I don't really see the appeal of this. I don't see that there is a lot of uh, mental health guidance. I think that's way too easy to get uh, very powerful weapons. And I remember when I got, even when I bought the gun, it was like a two-day wait. I don't know if that's still the case. Bought it at the uh, Sports Authority back in the day. Uh, but the open carry thing is bizarre. It really is. It's like the old West. I don't think it's going to lead to anything good. I've seen in the news even recently bad things have come of it. You don't even need a permit to carry a concealed weapon, which was the case, which was not a difficult thing to get, you know, 100 bucks and get a permit. Well, I respect you for your right to have a weapon in your home to protect your property and your family. And I am just, I'm just horrified that there are those out there that say more guns, more guns, more guns makes us safer. I, know. I just, it's, it's frightening. And, you know, your state is one of the states, not that you're responsible for it, of course, <laughs> but, but that it's really lax. And I just, I, I don't understand mm -hmm. the, the purpose of that. It's, it's embarrassing sometimes to say that I'm, I live here in other states too. It's kind of embarrassing. I've met people from out of the country who say, oh, we love America, but we're a little afraid of all the guns, it's kind of scary for us to visit here. God, it's so embarrassing. Yeah, and there's way too much road rage and anger. There's a lot of angry people here and in the in the whole country, I think. Yeah. Which is not a good combination with, you know, a loaded firearm. Going back to how you got to Florida and how you got into the profession you're in today. Um, so you're, you've moved to Queens, you're this kid, you're, you're not loving school, but you, you do love learning. And mm -hmm. once you come become, say, 18, you know, when most kids go off to college, when do you start finding your footing and you want to learn about linguistics or you want to become a writer or an editor? How, how do you go from skipping high school to that? You know, I don't think I ever had, I didn't want to be anything. I didn't know what to be. There are things I liked to do. I wanted to be a mattress tester so I could sleep all day. <laughs> My dad was in construction and then uh, worked for the housing authority. I'm sure, you know, he would have helped me get into that, but it was, I was not the kind of kid you'd look at and think, oh yeah, he should go work in construction. <laughs> That's like a weird kid with bleached hair and eyeliner and, you know, not something who, someone who would fit in in that. But when I was about 18 or 19, Interestingly, I started to get into um, classical and Baroque music. I was very interested in, in uh, Mozart operas. And his German operas intrigued me, and I would read along with them. Read the libretto that came with the CDs. I don't know what, what inspired that. No one else in my family liked that. They made fun of me for listening to it. I, for some reason, wanted to study German because I thought, I want to know. I know this is interesting. I want to study. I want to study what this guy's what they're saying. I want to be able to speak this and, and uh, understand this language. That made me want to go to college. So then I got the an equivalency, which was like super, super easy. People said, "Why wow, you got such a high score on it?" And I was like, "It's all a, it's a reading test, basically. I just had to learn a little bit of little bit of math." My grandmother helped me because I didn't even want to go to the store. She went to the store and got me a book, like a GED prep book. She made the phone calls, and her sister, my great aunt, they did that for me. I kept it a secret from everyone else. They gave me the twenty bucks to register for it. Took it, got the equivalency, and applied to. Uh, CUNY, City University. Thank God for public higher education, which is probably why I do what I do today. It was like an oasis, great teachers. I just loved it. Wonderful. And so what was your field of study there? That was the linguistics, the, the language? I took an intro class and loved it. Teacher was tattooed, <laughs> older guy, looked like an old sea captain. I was like, oh, this guy's cool. I got into more like the theoretical aspect of it. I loved historical linguistics and, and uh, neurolinguistics, all that kind of stuff. I did well in that. I was an A student. How do you end up becoming a writer and editor and working in the public university system? I got a master's in linguistics just because I liked it. I didn't know enough to know to go home when the party was over, as they say. 
um, at another state university where I work now. And, you know, if it weren't for state public universities, I don't think I would have been able to afford or gotten into gotten into college. So I'm grateful for that. Plus, they're usually relatively inexpensive. I started writing. People told me, you should be a writer. You should be a writer. And I thought, I don't want to be a writer. I don't have anything to say. I don't like fiction. I don't write poetry. Who wants to write? I don't have anything. What am I going to write? But I did have these stories in me that I read about interesting things. And I thought, someone's got to be interested in this weird shit going on in the world. There's all kinds of cool stuff out there in the natural world and unnatural world. Amazing coincidences. I'm just so impressed that you skipped. What, did you finish junior high? Or you skipped straight out of junior high and you mm -hmm. never went to high school and then you end up in the university system. This is a great story. And you got a master's. <laughs> Ironic, right? A master's. That's yeah. not that's not a small task. So very impressive. You know, the master's was kind of like um it was the same field as that I did for the bachelor. So it was kind of like I almost felt like I was cheating. Like I kind of knew this a lot of this stuff already. <laughs> but you but did I got to write it. A thesis. <laughs> you did. I did. It. And if you ever if you have insomnia, I'll mail you my thesis. <laughs> so. And I might just call you for that because I do have insomnia. <laughs> so if it's, a good it's in the library, the university library. I'm very proud. I made my wife and daughter look at it a few times and they were like, oh my God. And I want to get back to um, how you, you refer to your grandmother as someone who was really present in your life. Is that your mother's mother, your father's mother? My mother's mother, yeah. I remember her as always someone with a cigarette, just like my dad. <laughs> cigarette with lipstick on it. And one of those fancy ashtrays, you know, cl classic woman. Is she encouraging you to, is she a positive, in, you know, positive force in your life at that point? Yeah, she was like a couple blocks down from us. And everyone loved to stay with Grammy, all the kids. She said, I don't know why the children want to stay here. I don't know why what's here that's so great. And I got older and told her, it's because you catered to us our every whim. <laughs> of course we want to stay here. She was a classic New Yorker. She once said, I was born in New York and I want to die here when the time comes. And I'm glad to say she, she did at 97. And your mom is encouraging because she also loves pets is what I heard. So is she, did she give you kind of your love of animals? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. That's the one thing anyone who knows her says that the one good thing that is always the case with her is that she loved animals. And she would teach me to be kind, you know, by grabbing the dog's tail. She'd say, how about if I pull your hair? Would you like that? You wouldn't like it. That's how it feels to a dog. And I was like, oh my God, I don't want to make the dog feel bad. Do you think that just having such strong female influences in your life gave you more of a a loving and, and soft touch towards women? I think so. I didn't realize it, of course, at the time. And I think my wife pointed it out to me. She said, oh, it's because you were around Grammy and your great aunt so often, so much that you have, yeah, I guess, I guess more sensitivity towards women, I suppose. Are you um, a person who, could you say that your mom was a positive influence when growing up? Well, no, probably not. <laughs> she was a difficult influence. A lot of us struggle yeah. with our parents, so you're not alone there either. Yeah. She would say things like, we didn't abuse you. We didn't hit you. And I said, well, you know, there is other types of abuse. But she really, she didn't have the intention of harming us. You know, she just didn't know. A lot of it was ignorance, I think. And so you're this guy with a, now in life, you're, you're at a university and your daughter is an adult. Your marriage is still going strong. What is it that inspired your daughter to go for higher education. No, I can't take credit for that. She's a smart kid. She's very funny. She gets it from both of us. She's very sarcastic and witty. She knew she had to go to college. She wanted to make money. She wanted to move to New York is probably the impetus for it. She hates Miami. I agree with her. Doesn't like the politics in Florida. Doesn't like the heat, the humidity, people. I think she always knew that it was not an option to not go to college. Okay. So that for her was just a way up. Yeah. It was never, it was never even thought of that she wouldn't go. Your wife is such a positive, outgoing, fun-loving woman. Tell me about how you guys met. Well, first of all, I think she, you and she would should probably like form your own army and anything would get done. <laughs> you, you two would be a force to reckon with. But how we met when I was, let's see, I met I was 22 and my older brother was there. He visited us in Queens and he said, you know, um, we went out the night before and got a little, a little tipsy. 
The next day he said, I have to go in and be in, um, playing on late night. I'm playing with a backup for um, the guy from Bad Company. I said, oh, I'm kind of hungover. I don't really want to go. And he goes, come on, I'm alone. Come with me. And it was, you know, hard to resist. I said, okay, I'll go. And late night's a cool show anyway. And I remember walking around before when they were rehearsing, walking around that stage. I thought, oh, this is cool. This is where Letterman is. And there was this really cute blonde with glasses. She looked like a mod. I was like, oh, she's hot. She's gorgeous. But she looked at me and gave me a dirty look. And I thought, oh, she's probably one of these pages that thinks she's so great. And she's going to say to me, what are you doing here? Get out of here. You don't belong here. <laughs> and that, of course, <laughs> was not the case. So a little while later, my brother said to me, oh, there's this girl out there, cute girl out there. And and she's a fan of mine. And she wants to stay and see the show. You want to sit next to her? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> okay. Cute girl will sit next to. And then I saw it was her. And I thought, oh, see, she's not going to throw me out. We were sitting next to each other. And we wouldn't like look at each other. You're trying to sneak a peek, sitting next to each other in that audience. And I was nervous. And I was like tucking my pants I don't know, in my boots or out of my boots. I forget. But I'm looking at her thinking, oh, my God, she's way out of my league. And I, uh, after the show, I said, you want to come backstage? Uh, <laughs> good musician line, right? But you know, I'm not a musician. And she says I took her hand. I didn't think I was that bold. But we went back, hung out a little bit. And she gave me her work and her home phone. And I was so stupid. I didn't realize that that really meant she wanted me to call her. Because we had no cell phones or email then, of course. My friends were like, what's wrong with you? She gave me her, you, her home and work number. I think it's obvious she wants you to call her. So I did. And we had set up a date. And the day before the date, my father had a fatal heart attack. Oh, so sorry. Yeah, it was. But yeah, it was sudden. But he was a very, very heavy smoker. So. That happened. I was still in college. And I called her from the hospital and said, listen, I want you to know I can't make our date tomorrow, but I'm not backing out of it. You can hear that I'm in a hospital and dad's really sick. I didn't want her to think I was just blowing it off because I knew my dad in his, you know, coma was probably thinking, this kid better not give up. He better go on this date because he ain't going to find nobody else. <laughs> <laughs> he would have loved her. So we did actually, you know, delay it. And the rest is history together almost 20 married almost 28 years know each other 30 years wow and how old was your dad when he passed so sorry about that 60 oh he was a young man yeah by today's standards anyways and how Definitely. old were you 22 oh yeah i was just in college oh well that sucks and i'm sorry and did you have a nice relationship with dad growing up yeah definitely i remember when i was my brother's wore him down to <laughs> a milder nub when uh you know he was pretty strict when they were young i know there was a lot of uh capital punishment <laughs> he was very strict and then by the time i came along though he was you know he i was a pretty good kid he even said once ken's a good kid he never got into anything too bad nice uh so yeah we did get along we shared a good ghost story in common too <laughs> well i'm glad you had that and i'm so sorry <laughs> that you know he left this earth at such a young age you meet your wife, and what's she doing? Are you guys working together now at the same university? Yeah, she worked for a private company for a while, worked for the community college here. And then just a little over a year ago, she got a job where I am. I said, you're going to love it. It's great. Because she used to say she works for a college. And I said, well, I work for a university, <laughs> not just a college. And yeah, she loves it. She fit right in. She has really, you know taking charge of her role, and she's in the next building over from me. Would you say she's maybe the most influential person, or who is the most influential person in your life today? Yeah, it would have to be her and my daughter, too. Yeah, It's great to see a kid grow up into their own, get their own desires and wants and things in life, isn't it? It's fascinating oh, it's... to see what they, what they like that you aren't necessarily an influence of. So your daughter's in New York now, and mm -hmm. she is studying what? Well, she moved there on her own just to because she loves New York. From, I think, a young age, she said, I don't like it here. I'm moving to New York, and I ain't moving to Brooklyn. It's Manhattan or bust. Just city girl. And she moved there after she worked, uh, started working for a law firm here after college, then was able to get another job with that firm in their New York branch. And thankfully, it was enough to pay rent. She got a studio apartment. And then a little while later, she said, you know, I think I want to go to law school. I said, well, that's, everyone had said that for some reason, like, oh, she'd be a good lawyer. She took the 
test and got in and she got a full scholarship, which is like amazing to me. It's amazing and to me. Her first year. <laughs> it's amazing. It's an amazing story. I mean, it's hard work and she's a really good girl from what I know. And I did not did. mention that I know you for a while. Your oldest brother and my husband were in this epic band together and still are when, when the occasion comes mm -hmm. to play together. And I have mm -hmm. utmost admiration for the three musicians in that band, the Stray Cats. I do get back to New York on occasion, and I was fortunate enough to see your daughter once when she had, just after she had first moved there, and she was finding her way and, you know, just starting to make friends. And it's just so inspiring and such a nice thing to see how she's really made her way and found her, her path, yeah. you know. So good job, Kenneth. Good job to you and Ariel. Thank you. Parenting is... It's my wife's. Well, <laughs> I, I think it takes both of you, it seems, because you're both so close with her. And parenting is one of the most underrated jobs out there. So I want to tell you, I'm very impressed. Oh, thank you. I want to get back to right now what you're doing at the university is. The title is just editor, but I write fundraising material. So they'll come to me and say, we have a potential donor wants to contribute a few million bucks to something and this is what their interests are in helping first generation college students or you know science students or what have you or building a, a new building anything so write them a nice proposal get it designed and printed and they uh they solicit them okay so you do the outreach for fundraising so does that takes me to a question public universities do they need to a lot of fundraising to happen or do they get a lot of money from the government or is that's a good point because a lot of people will say and that can be kind of a stumbling block is you're supported by the state you don't need our money and it's just the opposite is true because the state funding it fluctuates with the economy and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not and even if it's great there's only so much they can give you there's a lot of universities uh, vying for the dollars too from from their state and it's, it's more like private universities really don't do it because they're the ones who've been established for quite a while and have huge endowments, billion-dollar endowments, <laughs> so they always have money. So, uh, yeah, public universities are the place to, to put your money. They help, you know, I wouldn't have gotten into college, probably gotten through college without it. And I see students there now who are so driven and, and intelligent, much more on the ball than I ever was at their age. And they come from difficult backgrounds. A lot of them are the first person in their family to go to college, like I was. And I just heard the other day uh, at a meeting, a sophomore student spoke about her, her parents were addicts and you know she was in foster abusive foster care. And she wasn't telling it as a sob story too. She was pretty upbeat, but you know we were all practically like in tears hearing it. She said, oh, thanks to this scholarship, I'm here. And I never thought I'd ever be able to even complete high school, but here I am at a university. And I was like, that's what it's all about. Thank you for sharing that. I really didn't know because uh, our kids went to private universities and there was still, believe it or not, a lot, a shit ton of fundraising. And I was always surprised oh, yeah. at how much we were spending on that tuition and we were still getting hit up to make contributions to the university. And I thought, wait a minute, this is a <laughs> private school. You're, we're paying a fortune. So... You'll be hearing from them for the rest of your life. Right, right. <laughs> They'll never let you off the hook. Let's support that public system that more people have access to because our country- It goes a long way. Yes, and our country- Got Dollars there go a long way. And I think our country needs as many educated people as possible. <laughs> I want to ask you about how you feel about the state of our country of America today, politically, what's going on. I thought, wow, not every, not anyone can become president. And then in 2016, I saw that that wasn't true. <laughs> Almost anyone can if they have enough money. I think that um, we've got too much corporate money into the government. And we've got too many people who won't allow the super rich to be taxed as they should. There's a lot of uh, anti-intellectualism that has been going on for decades. Don't trust doctors. Don't trust lawyers. Don't trust the government, which, no. Who does don't trust you know what experts say that's been fomenting for years and now you've got a lot of people who are easily manipulated to believe some kind of crazy stuff 
And, you know, it's good to question authority, question what you're told for sure. But when you believe that a pizza parlor's basement has a pedophile ring in it that Hillary Clinton is behind is, I mean, that's just like you're mentally kind of unbalanced if you believe that kind of thing. It's pretty far out there. There were people saying that, you know, Democrats were demons, like Obama was a demon, literally, not just like they didn't like him, which is fine. If you don't like someone's politics, that's fine. That's what work. That's what freedom's about, right? But, you know, come on, let's be reasonable. <laughs> He's not a reptilian alien yeah. <laughs> just because you don't like him. Well, where do you find your facts and information? I read the New York Times. I get it for free at work, which is great. Um, occasionally, get the Wall Street. I'll read the Wall Street Journal online, which is not something I ever thought I would read. <laughs> Try to get a balanced view, you know. And then there's some like CNN. I think is a bit. It's a bit like fear, a little bit of fear mongering on there, which I don't like either. But whatever you read, it gets a little depressing and upsetting after a while. Do you vote in every election? Yep. Absolutely. And where do you get your information to inform that vote? Well, for the bigger elections like president, I'm a Democrat, especially, you know, in this environment. Um, the smaller elections, it's hard to get a lot of that. People don't have time to really research a lot of these weird things put in front of you. And you vote for a local judge. Like, I don't know who this person is. So my wife, who loves to organize and arrange things, uh, thankfully, she gives me a cheat sheet and she says, just do what I'm telling you to do. And I trust her. And she'll say, this is how you vote. And she'll give me reasons too. Like this judge did something that you're not going to like, or this one did. So did something you like. So let's vote, vote for him or her, you know. And what is her career at the university? She's a senior project manager. So she, she's like right next to the president's office for the university. So she's like in with everything. Um, and she handles their, Printing, marketing, advertising, all these kinds of things. She has these things done, gets them paid for, gets them implemented. So it's a lot, a lot more work than I have. She'll she'll say, oh, I just got 100 emails this day. And 80 emails, I get like eight. We both read things the other person probably wouldn't be interested in. But she does research it, uh, just research things online when it comes to that. Because you really have to now when there's all this like, you know, the abortion pill and, and all these things they want to take away she said now i have to she's forced to right really research it what is your greatest hope for the future of america i think gen z and i know my daughter is a part of that generation so i'm prejudiced and younger they they're pretty cool they like a lot of cool interesting things they question things that should be questioned they say things like you know why why are you doing that way doing things that way it's been done that way forever why do I have to continue to do that? Like, you know, they question things. And a lot of them see through a lot of bullshit, which is nice. And a lot of the students where I am who come from, a lot of them come from uh, backgrounds where their parents are immigrants, they very little money. And they really are hardworking and they're pretty fair. And I hold out hope for them. <laughs> so does that give you, would you say you're optimistic about the future of this country because of this Generation Z? Yeah. Yes. I mean, the whole world, really. You know, I think global warming is, at, is past the point of no return to an extent. But that should not let that should not mean we give up. And I don't think they would give up. I do like Gen Z. Okay. So I just heard something else I want to ask you about then. You are concerned about the state of the environment. Yeah, it's horrendous. Do you see the effects of that with the plants and animals and the things that you interact with? To an extent, I do. I do see things appearing earlier, certain insects, just my anecdotal observations. Plants bloom earlier. So like mangoes are a big thing here. They start flowering earlier, like February, a flower twice. And it's like, it's just weird, you know, plant people who are much more, more educated about it than I am will tell me. It's a reality whether it's human caused or not. I, I know it is, but even if it weren't human caused, temperatures are rising. It's the fact. When everybody stopped, mm -hmm. you know, there was all this conversation about 
there's more dolphins out there. The waters are cleaner. The air was cleaner, less flying, less, you know, less activity in the water. So that kind of makes me lean towards, I think we are polluting our environment and we need to work a little harder at stopping that. Leave things alone a little bit and start, stuff will start to come back. People see dolphins in New York Harbor. Wow. It's not something you would have seen, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So cleanup does help. It does, right? I was talking to someone else about this where when we were kids, um, you know, we had these smog alerts in California. Kids can't go out today. It's going to be too smoggy, you know, level whatever. There's not as many of those smoggy days anymore. There were some things that were implemented that helped clean up the air. Oh, my God. Yeah, we need more. Right. We need more regulations and corporations for sure. Some more regulations. There's no reason for them to. You know, why would they install these expensive, you know, air scrubbers if they didn't have to? They wouldn't. And we have to suffer the consequences. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, remember the commercial with the uh, Native American man crying because they're throwing litter at his feet? Do I, do I remember that? I remember it so well. People would literally throw garbage out of the windows of their car. It helped. That commercial helped because, you know, I don't want to make that guy cry. Right. He looks so sad. That commercial definitely <laughs> made you conscious of it, you know, a little more conscientious. And also, like, I mean, Smokey the Bear. That was a good one, too. Mm -hmm. Don't throw your cigarette down. We, don't, we, we need more of those ads today, I think, maybe for the next generation. I know people who go out and literally restore endangered plants and animals that come after that. And they, man, down here, especially in this heat and humidity, they work really hard. They get paid very, very little. So I hope that changes. I guess my, my final question is, do you feel more optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the United States? Um, a little bit more optimistic. That's good to hear. Is there anything in particular that you want the listeners to know that we didn't cover? Is there... Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to share before we sign off? I, ha I don't have a lot of money to give to too many causes, but I think, I mean, we give to like childhood cancer. That's a great one to give to. Otherwise, just be kind to each other. Thank you so much for being here, Kenneth. Can't wait to see you, in, you live and in person sometime. Definitely soon, I hope. This episode of Deborah Craddock was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was well, performed was by Amy Nelson American and Kathy girl. Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, Check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at DebraCraddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock, like Democratic. Until next time. Political is perfect.